People have been trying for more than 100 years to restore an iconic fish in Michigan, the Arctic grayling. They've had no success. But it um, seems like this time around, we might have a better chance of, of succeeding than any of the previous efforts. Restoring a fish that was wiped out entirely. That's coming up on Points North, a show about the land, water, and inhabitants of the Upper Great Lakes. I'm Peter Payette. Unsuccessful attempts to hatch and stock Michigan streams with Arctic grayling date back to the late 1800s. But now, more than 50 collaborators across Michigan think they've figured out what makes this fish tick. IPR's Lexi Krupp explains why the odds might be in the grayling's favor this time. In an out-of-the-way corner of the state fish hatchery in Marquette are a few thousand skinny gray fish. They're skittish. Movement above them definitely puts stress on them and scares them. So uh, they're kind of in a dark, quiet, three tanks here in a dark, quiet area. Jim Oho runs the facility for the Department of Natural Resources. And for the past few months, he's been taking care of these fish every day. They're growing, doing well, very low mortalities, almost non-existent mortalities. These young, healthy fish are Arctic grayling. They came all the way from Alaska. Nicole Watson went there to collect fish eggs from a river near Fairbanks. She brought them back with her on the plane. There are my little carry-ons. You get plenty of odd looks from other people on the plane when you are carrying a styrofoam box that says live animals. Nicole is a fishery scientist at Michigan State University who studies Arctic grayling. The fish hatched in her lab and spent some time in quarantine before they made it to Marquette this fall. And there are a lot of people and money invested in these little fish. That's because there hasn't been a population of grayling in Michigan for more than a century. And that would be shocking to people living here 200 years ago. Back then, the state's rivers were teeming with grayling. There's records of people just catching them and putting them up on a pile on the bank and just leaving them to rot. The fish were shipped down to restaurants in Chicago and Detroit, and they were a big draw for tourists because they're easy to catch. And it wasn't just like going out and catching, you know, 10 to 20 fish. It was going out and catching hundreds of fish repeatedly over and over. At the same time, in the 1800s, the logging industry was mucking up their habitat. And the state was stocking fish like brown trout, who were suddenly competing with grayling for food. By the early 1900s, there were no grayling left in the Lower Peninsula. The last one was caught in the UP in 1936. And people have been trying to reintroduce these fish in Michigan basically ever since. There was a big push in the 1950s and again in the late 80s, but researchers kept running into the same problem. The fish would just disappear. They just put them in, and then when they would go out later to look for them, they didn't find them. Troy Zorn is a fisheries biologist at the DNR. He says since the last big effort to reintroduce grayling in Michigan, researchers have learned a lot about these fish. And in places like Montana, they've tried raising grayling eggs in buckets next to streams, not a hatchery. Right after the fish emerge from their eggs, they swim out a little exit hole. And this method has worked. The grayling came back to the stream as adults to reproduce. And what might be going on here is really cool. Troy says these baby fish could be forming this powerful memory of the water as their home. It's called imprinting. What they're getting a snapshot of is the scent of the water, so the chemicals in the water. And um, the signature 
of the smell of that water, they somehow lock that away in their brain. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. So back at Marquette, all the grayling at the hatchery there, they won't be going into any rivers or streams in Michigan. They're what's called broodstock, the moms and pops. Once they grow up and reproduce, researchers like Troy will put their eggs into streams, where they think the fish have the best shot at survival. Then, hopefully, this next generation of little fish will grow up and return to spawn. That's the plan. I think there's a decent chance of success, but it's, but <laughs> it's not a sure chance by a long shot. Even if all goes well, it will be years before any grayling eggs make it into state waters. And then the little fish will have a lot to contend with, like not becoming lunch. But there will be many people rooting for them. And maybe this time, they'll stick around. This is Points North on Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Peter Payette. The end of 2020 is in sight, and amidst all the suffering, there have been a few faint silver linings. One is people are outside more. There's more people birdwatching, hunting, and hiking. And here on Points North, reporter Cheryl Bartz has spent a lot of time this year teaching us about the plants and animals in our neighborhood. Cheryl introduced us to an unusual fungi called dog stinkhorn, and she explained how trillium spread in the forest and why so many deer get hit by cars. She says she has also met more people interested in the natural world. Like this one woman said, well, I went for a walk the other day and it was really cold, but as I got close to the lake, I, I heard this sound, and it sounded like a wind chime, and I, I didn't know what it was. And when she got there, she discovered it was little pieces of ice that were, you know, blowing up against the shore, and, she, and she'd never heard it before. And what about you? Has doing this radio work helped you appreciate what you see and hear out there more? I've always been out in nature. I've always wondered about things, but what working with Red Pine Radio does for me is it gives me an excuse to call an expert and get even more detailed information. Like um, when I did that thing on deer vision, I got to talk to that professor at Tennessee Tech. And I knew, you know, going into it, that deer are prey animals and their eyes are on the side of their head. But he explained more about it and also... I, I learned about the deer in the headlights, that that's really a thing, that they're really sensitive to blue light. And so humans are not that sensitive to blue light. So if we want to brighten things up, we add a lot of blue. So headlights tend to have a lot of blue light. And that's why when deer see them, they are like a deer in the headlights. They're blinded. What were your most memorable discoveries this year? I think the piece I enjoyed the most was the mystery hole. You always see holes in in the ground. Maybe you don't notice them, but there are tons of holes in the ground. And, you know, most of us can identify a few kinds, but there are lots of other holes in the ground. It was really, I'm sorry, thrilling to stake out the hole and um, see what made it and then actually get to see the little critter and then um, call up Duke Elsner and find out more about the wolf spider. And uh, looking uh, ahead to the year to come, you also have a plan to uh, have a deer decompose in your yard. What would you hope to learn from that? 
how a decomposing animal is part of the web of life. And I unscientifically watched one a couple of years ago that was near my house. And it was amazing to me how many different birds and animals and insects and whatnot came and benefited from that carcass. What are we losing by taking all those nutrients out of the environment when when deers are hit by cars? We just take them away and put them in a landfill usually. Cheryl Bartz is a member of our Red Pine Radio Workshop, and she produces field guides for Points North. That's our show for this week. I'm Peter Payette. Thanks to Lexi Krupp for all her excellent work. Join us in 2021, Fridays during Morning Edition, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year. <laughs>